I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we take a religion and turn it into like a fun little musical. But if you want to enjoy that musical, you have to remember that like we wrote it. We read the book so that you don't have to, but we will share our opinions. And I totally respect if you don't want to know the opinions, but I would suggest you don't continue on. Also, if you are Mormon and you take it seriously, this is a whole book talking about how she doesn't like being Mormon and she thinks it's all silly. You will probably be hurt by this episode. Probably. So, you know, maybe not the one for you. Also, we've got some announcements. We just announced that we have added second dates in Dublin and London. So we'll be in Dublin on April 6th and 7th, and then we will be in London on April 8th and 10th. We also have shows coming up in Seattle, Portland, Dallas, and Austin, and New York is almost sold out. So make sure you get that ticket. The dates and the links are all in the show notes for this episode. They're in our link in bio on every social media platform. And some people have asked us, what are these live shows? What's the vibe? Is it just a podcast but live? No. It is a podcast but live but more. We do stand-up. We analyze an essay for a mini version of a podcast. We do games. We share our hot takes on the latest happenings in pop culture. I personally think it's a pretty fun time. It's a really fun time, I think. I walk out of every single show just thinking, wow, that was like a really fun time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited to see you guys there. I can't wait. I'm so happy about London and Dublin and the added shows. I know if you're feeling neglected geographically, please know we're trying our absolute hardest to get everywhere. We are only dose people and also like a lot of venues, you know, aren't always open. So we are trying to get there. We're going to add more shows soon. The list we have online is not like an exhaustive list of the only places we'll go and then we'll die. We will continue to live after April and we will be adding cities constantly. Yeah, we're going to add cities as much as we can. We're really an ad hoc team. One thing about us is we never stop and get it together and then go. We like to fly by the seat of our pants. One thing to keep in mind is that I am going to, I think, five weddings this year. So there's only so many days in the year and we're trying to do as much as we can. Oh, wait, one other thing that I want to add. The book club. I don't think we thanked the book club attendees last time, but we had our first ever book club on Geneva. I had an absolute ball of a time. We broke up into little groups to discuss crying in H-Mart, and the next book club will be April 19th. So make sure you're in the Geneva for the announcement of the book that we'll be reading and any other details. Yeah, and any suggestions you had if you were there last week, we want to make it better. It's still in its infancy. It's an iterative process. We just want to make whatever it would make you guys happy. So let us know. We love you so much. We'll announce the book there. And also just join our Geneva if you're looking for a place to chat or see other people's dogs. The link is in the show notes. And then Ashley, my good friend, yes, my dearest Claire. Valentine. Happy Valentine's Happy Valentine's to you. to you. I know it's not Valentine's Day where you are, but it was when we recorded this. My Valentine. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity and you wrote a memoir, what would last week's chapter be called? It would be called, Oh, She's Standing Up. Who's standing up? Me, because here's the thing. I feel like stand-up was a huge part of my identity for a very long time. And in the last couple of years, I was getting a little frustrated with stand-up before the pandemic. And then there was the pandemic forced hiatus, which for a while I was actually quite happy about. And I since then have had moments where I was like into comedy again and then kind of frustrated with comedy again. And I know you've been getting back into stand-up pretty heavy. Heavy feels like a big word for three times. Emotionally, (laughs) you've been back into stand-up. I've been letting it weigh heavy on me, but sure. Exactly. 
Exactly. And I feel like I often, especially in terms of stand-up, compare myself to you because I think you're the only person with one of those careers where like there are 10 billion different versions of it and you're the only person that exists who has essentially the same thing as me. We are twins. (laughs) When you were talking about how much you felt like getting back into stand-up and things like that, I was like, maybe I just hate stand-up now. Like I think I might just not like it anymore. And then This weekend, it washed over me like a ton of bricks of like, no, I'm ready to do comedy again. And I feel very excited about it and also very scared about it because I used to write new jokes constantly. And I have been doing the same set for over a year now, which feels like normal by normal standards and insane by my personal standards. That's really not how I used to write. And I feel like very anxious getting back into it and opening myself up to the criticism and the trial and the error. But I'm also like excited by it. And I went to an open mic last night and I it was very scary. And I feel like it never been kissed from going back to high school. <laughs> I put a notebook in my purse and I was like, are the kids still writing in notebooks? <laughs> Claire, yes. if you were to write a memoir, what would you title last week's chapter? Just move. Okay. <laughs> I think I'm moving. The date keeps getting pushed. It's very like up in the air. We have to break our lease. So we'll see how it goes. But I am like 92% positive at this point that we are just going to move. And I'm feeling better. I feel rejuvenated. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. And the attitude I have is so toxic in a positive way <laughs> because I'm like, we'll just move. Yesterday, I dropped the toothpaste cap down into (laughs) the drain of my sink. And I was like, I could try to get it out or we could just move. (laughs) And it's just like anytime something comes up, like today I went to plug in our air purifier and I was like, oh, I'll probably have to get a whole new filter for it. I bet the filter. And I was just like, fuck it. We'll just move. It is such a like toxic mindset when you're getting ready to move. I feel like I had that so bad. Also start hating your apartment. Oh, I hate everything. There's an alarm that goes off. Have I told you guys this yet? For the last two to three years, somebody sets their alarm every day at like 9 a.m. and it goes off for an hour. And it sounds like an underwater radar, like how you would find a dolphin. For years, I was like, the sounds of the city. And now I'm like, I swear to fucking God, if I ever find out whose alarm that is that goes off for 50 minutes every morning, I'd kill them. (laughs) So that's where I'm at. So listen, if something is a problem in your life, just move. Ignore it. (laughs) Anything that's a problem. Run away. Leave it there. Abandon all problems. Just move on. I'll tell you what. You know who could have taken that advice? Heather Gay, Bad Mormon, a memoir. She, if you don't know, is a real housewife of Salt Lake City as of three years ago, and nobody has ever turned around a book faster. She is a former Mormon, a foreman. She's a foreman. And I do think the real housewives of Salt Lake City in general had this mentality of we get 15 minutes of fame and we are going to make the most of it. Like, I don't know how long they'll all last, but the way that this class of housewife has just taken it and fucking run, they all like rented houses to look more real housewifey. I know that they all made these elaborate decisions to just like get on the radar as hard and fast as possible. The problem with Real Housewives now is that everybody's in on the game. They know how to play the game. You know, in the same way that everyone goes on The Bachelor to get on Instagram, they're all going on The Real Housewives to launch a product. Well, that's why all reality shows need like a set expiration date because it was like when people started going on American Idol to get famous for being bad at singing when there's a new reality show concept where no one knows like what they're getting into. There is a brief moment in time where it is fun and exciting to watch. Love is Blind took everyone by storm because we'd never seen anything like it before. And now by season three, we're just like, all right, but now you're going on the reality show to be a reality TV star and it's not fun. Anyway, so Heather Gay went on Real Housewives of Salt Lake City and then she wrote a memoir almost immediately. This memoir has been in the works for a while. It was delayed several times. People were asking us to do it for 
Like six months now. Longer, I think. I think it was supposed to come out six months ago. So it was announced a year ago. And everyone's like, why haven't you covered it? And we said, because it's not out yet. And then finally, someone slid into our DMs and said, will you cover it? And that person was Heather Gay herself. Yeah. So I would (laughs) like to start this off by saying up top, Heather Gay seems like a very likable person. I know after season one, she was a fan favorite. I have no problem with Heather Gay. She seems sweet enough. I don't think this is a good book. Listen, she's a brainwashed person. She's not a writer. It's not her fault that this book is bad, but I can't fake be nice to it just because she seemed very lovely in the DMs. And I hope that this doesn't hurt our relationship. (laughs) (laughs) She sent us a PR box, you guys. We don't get a lot of PR. I'll tell you that much. And And this is probably why, because you can't butter us up with fun fatty or whatever was in there. Yeah, it was like potpourri, I think. Whatever they fill those boxes with. We don't know. We don't get PR. (laughs) It's actually interesting reading this book right after the Ginger Duggar debacle. For those of you who don't know and who have been wondering, we did try to do Ginger Duggar. We read the book. We sat down to record. We abandoned ship. And we actually did a Patreon with Fundy Fridays, who is kind of an expert in fundamentalism and has been following 19 Kids and Counting almost fundamentalistly (laughs) for many years now. So that's on the Patreon. That was a really fun interview where we got to learn a lot. But the whole problem with the Ginger Duggar memoir was it's a woman who went from one cult to another and didn't unbrainwash herself, was just like, instead of my dad's cult, try my husband's. I would actually argue that Heather Gay has the same problem where she went from having her entire identity based in being Mormon, being good by Mormon standards, and trying to be like the perfect Mormon housewife, as she says, lowercase h, to now she's trying to win the religion of reality TV. And what I don't think she knew yet when she was writing this book is that is an impossible task. Just like being sinless is impossible in the eyes of the Mormon God. I think it's regular God. Yeah, but like their Mormon version of him feels stricter. Yeah. I mean, all the gods seem like tough audiences. I'll tell you what, I would not want to know that God. Very judgy people. (laughs) (laughs) Now she's obsessed with winning over the audience. And I feel sad for her because I don't think she knows that that is going to backfire. And I think it probably has already backfired in little ways. But something that I was shocked by in this book was there is no moment of deprogramming. She does not do a ton of work, I think. Or if she did, she doesn't mention it. And kind of looking at what she was taught and thinking about what that means for her life and how she was raised and who she wants to be. And a lot of what pushed her out of Mormonism was being on The Real Housewives. And I don't know that that's the greatest motivator for anybody in the world. Yeah, so let's get into the book. First up, she gives a quick disclaimer that although the current proper name for Mormon is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, she grew up calling it Mormon and she said, I'm going to keep calling it Mormon. I think saying bad Mormon has a much better ring to it than saying I'm a bad Church of the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints worshiper. Yeah, so she calls it Mormon and she says, I don't know, take it up with someone else. So then, like all great books, there's an author's note, there's a prologue. The prologue is that she can't believe she's on reality TV. And I get that. I'm also surprised, too. (laughs) She breaks this book up into five sections. And the first is called Bad Daughter. And she opens with what I realized by the end of the book is one of her signatures, a horribly convoluted, bloated metaphor. It kind of reminds me of what Ashley does at the beginning of every episode. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's why it didn't hit me as hard as it hit you, because I thought... I'm writing them down, (laughs) locking these away. (laughs) I can't wait to use this one later. The metaphors in this book are not only so long, but completely obfuscating anything of actual interest. And then also don't always make sense. We're kind of like, they lose the plot a lot. (gasps) Wait, I do do that. (laughs) Great art is a mirror, man. (laughs) 
So in this intro, she talks about growing up in Colorado. So her family lived in Colorado until right before she went to high school when they moved to Utah. Her parents actually moved around a lot because her dad was in the FBI. And up until her two youngest siblings, they were in a different state for every child. And her dutiful Mormon mom just followed because that's kind of what you do. So in their house in Colorado, I guess there was a gate in the backyard that led out to just somewhere. And she was told to never go through that gate. And one day she did go through the gate, but she was too small to then reopen the gate behind her. So she had to walk all the way around the neighborhood to the front of her house and go in the front door. And she realized in that moment that rules were not meant to stifle me. Rules were meant to protect me. Something bad could have happened to me outside the gate. And my family, all they want is the best for me. My ambition had exceeded my ability. And I understood why my parents had built the fence and been explicit about the rules because they loved me, because they wanted to protect me, because they knew it was dangerous. They knew there was no way back. On the other side of the gate, it was all so clear. I was locked out of my life, locked away from my family, abandoned in the lone and dreary world. So here's where it falls flat. Nothing bad happened to her outside the gate, and she was not, in fact, alone in the dreary world. She was just, like, in her suburban neighborhood. It was just too long. I think if it had been a one-paragraph metaphor, that would have been fine, but it really shouldn't have been the opening chapter. I was just wading through it. And she explains growing up Mormon, she had a lot of pride and she had a lot of safety and she had a lot of assurance. When other people spoke of their religions, I would think, forget religion. What we have is so much better. We have a way of life, a plan of happiness, a proven system. It works if you work it. Yeah. And one of this, to me, scariest things that she explains about Mormonism is this plan of happiness, that if you are following the rules, you will be happy. And that is a very dangerous thing from a mental health standpoint. There are a lot of mysteries inside of your phone. What did that emoji mean? Does a lapse in response mean someone is busy or are they waiting to respond? With June's journey, there are mysteries that you can actually solve. With more than a thousand scenes full of hidden clues, there's always something new to discover. New chapters are added every single week and there are always new characters to meet, places to search. Travel back in time to the roaring 20s and trek across the globe to follow your next lead. June's Journey is a gripping murder mystery adventure, and it's just a tap away. June's Journey has tons of fun and unique features to keep you entertained. You can build your own island estate with gardens, beautiful buildings. You can collect scraps of information and fill your photo album and learn more and more about each character every single day. One of my favorite things is really getting to know those characters. They are intricate. It's like reading a book, except for instead of reading a book, you're playing the funnest game inside of your phone. I've been playing June's Journey for ages now, and I never get sick of it because there are always new features added, always new characters, always new mysteries to solve. It's so much fun to take a break from whatever I'm watching, whatever I'm reading, and just say, you know what? I'm going to have a June's Journey afternoon. Sometimes Bug will be fast asleep, and I'm ready to go for a walk, but I'm like, okay, I am not going to disturb her right now. Maybe I'll just settle into June's Journey for a little bit until she says we're ready to go outside. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. She also comes from a half-great Mormon pedigree. Her dad was a wayward Mormon who was raised half by his mom and who had been abandoned by his father. So, like, they had proof in the pudding that, you know, look at my grandpa. He didn't follow the gospel and he was a horrible man. And my poor grandmother had to basically raise my father alone. Her mother, on the other hand, was BIC, which means born in the covenant, which was, quote, a Mormon flex. And her ancestry could be traced all the way back to the prairie. She was the third of six, and her two older siblings were born 18 months apart. And then there was a four-year gap, then Heather. 
then another gap, and then her three youngest siblings. So she talks about having this relationship with her parents that none of the other kids did, where she kind of got to be alone for a little while because the older siblings were in school, the younger siblings weren't born yet. She felt very close to them, and she really loved them and wanted their approval. I was not a golden child, but I was not a problem child. I was like my birth number, somewhere right in the middle. She talks a lot about she was smart. She laughed a lot. She had a lot of fun. She tested boundaries, but she wanted to be good. And I think that most kids can relate to that. All little kids, I think, yeah, religious or not, want to be good. But you also want to explore and you want to learn. She was a pretty boisterous kid. And within the Mormon church, that is a bad thing for a girl to be. She struggled a lot with their morality. She didn't understand being like, your mistake doesn't define you. If I was good, how could I also be bad? These were the concepts I had already internalized, even though I was only in the second grade. And now they had somehow failed me. I didn't yet know that I was already steeped in the lifeblood of devout religion. Denial, denial, denial. I was beginning to learn the gendered roles of behavior. My parents didn't want a steely-eyed warrior for a daughter. They wanted someone obedient and kind. She was trained her whole life essentially to be an obedient wife. From the time you're born, your life doesn't really start until you get a husband. And then once you get a husband, the purpose of your life is to serve him, to be his, quote, help me, which means like help him meet his goals. Around the age of eight, when my chore cards advanced from feeding the baby a bottle to feeding the family a casserole, I knew that I'd finally arrived. My mother entrusted me with the green bean casserole, and I immediately committed the recipe to memory. I know it took twice as much work to write down the step-by-step instructions and lay out all the tools to do it, but it didn't matter. My mom loved me and was willing to make the sacrifice. She was smart enough and mom enough to teach me, to stack the deck in my favor, to build the skill set I would need to survive. She was giving me a fighting chance. So in Denver, they didn't know a ton of other Mormons. It was a largely, not necessarily secular society, but there weren't a lot of other Mormon families, so they'd spend a lot of time with the Mormons they knew. And at one point, they saw some other Mormons out at an ice cream shop. And in the Mormon church, you call everybody sister and brother. So she sees Sister Gillespie, and she's like, Sister Gillespie, great to see you out here. And the mom quickly takes Heather aside and is like, don't call her that. Call her Mrs. Gillespie in public. And this struck me as very odd because I feel like a lot of times very staunchly religious people, what they know and what they believe is that the things that they do are right. That's like a huge tenet of these big religions. And so the fact that they knew in public, don't let people know you're Mormon, is very interesting to me. And I think it helped plant seeds of doubt in her. And I think watching her mom be like, this is a private thing that we do. It's not for the masses. is very interesting. I do think that that was specific to their family and where they lived. Because obviously then she's going on as a missionary, like literally ringing every bell in every apartment in the south of France, being told we hate you, go away, and being like, no, I'm correct in doing this. And then in the next chapter, her dad is like kind of hate crime. So I think it comes more from their family trying to not get hate crimed. I think it was a problem of Denver and less a problem of their family's devoutness. In the next section, she is like playing soccer. Her dad is the coach. And another coach starts making fun of her dad's funny underwear, which Mormon people wear garments under all their clothes. And his garment line was visible. I also don't think that that's what tipped him off. I just think that other adults knew about this and Mormonism. He was an assistant coach, got into a fight with the dad on the sidelines. I have a feeling that this man got so riled up about seven-year-old girls playing soccer that he like was screaming religious hate at somebody. Yeah, my dad got kicked out of a softball game once. He was the assistant coach. Oh, I mean, we can't even. (laughs) (laughs) So they're at the game and someone screams, that's right, take your daughter in your funny underwear and go home. So yeah, I think it wasn't that they saw it. I just think it was her first tip off that they were different than other people. And she also had no idea what garments were. It kind of reminds me of Scientology and that there's all these secrets that even if you're like fully in it, you don't know until you know. 
she then talks about how much she loved her dad. I'm not sure why, but it confirms the fact that when my dad was around, his presence eclipsed the sun. My mom fell in line and became his helpmate. Everyone else disappeared. I look at the pictures from my soccer game now and see my uniform was clean and ironed. My socks and shin guards were matching and bright. My hair was always parted down the middle. A solid hour of unpaid labor that I counted on so that I can enjoy my time with a real hero in all of our rewrites. Dad. Oh my God. Her mom is Alec Baldwin's wet fucking dream. <laughs> So she was quite horny in high school or in middle school. She had a thing for boys, but she knew about purity. And so she would always kind of hold herself back. I have to say it's such a confusing, contradictory set of goals. Because on the one hand, she talks about being in the Young Women's Organization, whose purpose is to guide and nurture daughters of God as they become covenant women and to help each one prepare for her divine role as daughter, wife, and mother. Everything I was learning to become was in preparation for finding a man because my salvation was contingent on it. And then meanwhile, the worst thing you could do is like touch or flirt with a man. Yeah. It is so hard to be like your whole goal in life is to marry that man. But do not think about kissing him. <laughs> if you think about kissing him, you will burn in the pits of hell. But also if you don't get a husband immediately, but also don't get a husband by the way of like getting to know him or any sort of intimacy. Yeah. They're literally sitting there being like men, 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 men. Are you thinking about men? That's fucked up. You're a pervert. <laughs> She was known for being a bit loud in school. And at one point, she was just cracking jokes out the window of a car on like a church trip. And her teacher told her parents she was so anxious about getting in trouble. She's like, I know I have these outbursts. I just think they're funny. I have a really hard time controlling trying to be funny. And they set her down. And this, to me, is one of the more fucked up things in this book. Her dad says, we want to talk to you about why you're really acting like this. And she says, acting like what? Sometimes when we aren't feeling good about ourselves, we act out. Your mom and I think you may be feeling insecure about your appearance and your weight, so you're acting obnoxious to get attention. We want you to start exercising daily. You and I can go on a walk every morning. So her dad lays out this whole routine to help her feel more confident, aka look like they think she should look. I wanted him to pull me aside and say, I'd rather you be funny and brave and occasionally look obnoxious than for you to think you have to be small and quiet and nice in order to be good. Everything my dad said was more or less true, as hard as it was to hear. He was willing to say the things that needed to be said, even if they were unpopular. I want to be compassionate because I do think it is so hard to cut your family off. If you want to stay in touch with your family, but you also want to leave the religion that they think is so true, I don't know how you disentangle it. But she's always saying like, my dad was willing to say the unpopular thing because he loved me, because he cared. And it's just like, yeah, they think the only way she can get into heaven is by being a skinny, quiet little wife. And so they want her to be a skinny, quiet little wife, even if it makes her miserable. And this whole book is her trying to come to terms with that and like still love them and see their perspective. But she has not done a ton of work on this. So I don't know that it's time for her to write the book. Yeah, I completely agree. I do think she goes really quite easy on her mom. I think she's obviously hurt by some of the things her mom has said, but she does really gush about what a great woman she is. And she does go pretty hard on her dad. And I will say, I do think it is impressive to me as someone who was this brainwashed to give a dad a harder time than the mom. I like would disagree. I don't think she ever says anything bad about her dad. I think you and me read what he did. And maybe that was her intention was to be like, so this is kind of fucked up thing. But all she ever says is he was willing to do the unpopular thing because he loved me and protected me. She never actually condemns him in any way or says it was wrong. Yeah, I guess as the book goes on, as she starts to become more and more disillusioned, instead of describing her dad as like he did because he loved me, she'll say like there was his stare again, like steely and cold. She wrote this book as best she could trying to not upset them. Yeah. And like stay on his good side and be like, I loved you. We had such a great time. 
Yeah, I guess I do think, especially coming from this religion, she could have stayed on everyone's good side by still saying like, and my mom fucking sucked. And she does not say that. And so maybe I'm giving her too much credit for not being mean to her mom. I guess in their household, her mom followed her dad so much that it's almost like, what are you going to yell at the second in command? I think her mom to a T follows like, you obey. She even admits, she's like, I don't even remember my mom in most memories. But I feel like that's kind of sneaky jab at her dad to be like further proof that he was a walking attention whore. So her dad then wakes her up every day at 5 a.m. and makes her go walking. It's so funny, like the things that are a big deal in Mormonism. So like the closer you can get to the living prophet, the better off you are. And so their big claim to fame is because her dad was former FBI when the prophet came to their town to bless the new temple. He got to be the bodyguard. And I even heard her say that on the show. And she wasn't even the permanent bodyguard. He was like a weekend bodyguard. And that is something that their family clings to to this day. So they go to the temple and it's her first experience there. And she has this Hosanna, which is like a handkerchief. They have this chant. And when she sees the chant for the first time, she kind of laughs. And then she realizes pretty quickly that it's not funny. But it is like another moment that was kind of a crack in the foundation for her. I swallowed my smile and snapped to attentive reverence as swiftly as the handkerchiefs flew through the air. I had not ushered in the spirit of the Lord to the Denver temple, but it also felt like I had participated in my first flash mob with the prophet in the celestial room, Mormon Flex. And so she's like, if everybody thought it was weird, nobody was showing it. So she just keeps it to herself. So they eventually move to Utah when she's in ninth grade. It's very glossed over. She says it's because her dad had at one point left his job working for the government and like ran an oil company, which feels pretty profitable. But then he got an Arby's. Yeah, but he had the side hustle of owning Arby's. And then the oil company went under. But he's like, well, I've got these Arby's. So they go and open a bunch of chain restaurants in Salt Lake City. Okay, so when they moved to Utah, it's very interesting because in Colorado, they didn't know that many Mormons. So it was a lot easier for her to be like, okay, the Mormons are good, the non-Mormons are bad. I'll just stick to my Mormon principles. But in Utah, everyone was Mormon and there were a lot of Mormon kids who were like doing some real kid things. Just regular teenage stuff, drinking, seven minutes in heaven type things. She tells a story. She's at a party and two girls are like, hey, you should make out with that guy. And she's like, are you sure? Is he weird? Why are you guys so insistent that I make out with this guy? It feels like a prank. And then it turns out that he was seeing another girl at school. So on her first day of school, she walked in as a girl that had like kissed someone else's boyfriend. A lot of my friends were living double lives and keeping their sins secret. This camouflage was nice for a while, allowing me to partake in the small wonders of the wayward world while still charting my course for celestial glory. But it felt like the goalposts kept getting moved and it became harder for me to tell the difference between right and wrong, dabbling and indulging in the wages of sin. So she tells a story about one time she sneaks out and is in a hot tub with friends. And when she gets caught coming home, her dad drives back down to the hot tub to find out what had happened. I always felt like my dad was deeply invested in my chastity and in my reputation, so much so that he would load me into the car at 2 a.m. and drive me through the neighborhood to make sure I wasn't being taken advantage of. We were new in town, but he was always a dad first. He put his principles ahead of being liked or being cool in the community. My dad loved me so much that he would break somebody's arm if they so much as touched me. See, that's what I mean, where it's almost like she's like, yeah, my dad only cared about my chastity and reputation because he loved me so much. Like I sense so much fear and trying to be honest while not even seeing it from her dad's perspective, but protecting him, like trying to make us see it from her dad's perspective. Do you know the interesting thing that she does about her dad because he was in the FBI? She'll always use whatever opportunity she can to like make him seem like a very impressive detective. Uh, He's not a genius. You're a teenager. Like you're an idiot kid and he's a dad. So now she gets into some of the more sinister and easily exploitable parts of what happens 
in purity culture where adult men are expected to hold teenage girls accountable sexually. So you have a bishop that you meet with. The boys would complain about their bishop interviews because they very often required what many bishops called the check-in method. At the end of every day, a young boy struggling with masturbation would call the bishop to let him know how he had fared when it came to fantasizing about the fairer sex. Good day bishop meant that he had weathered the storm, but bad day meant that he had fallen victim to the five-finger devil himself. The church holds these purity principles to be sacred. Breaking the law of chastity is tantamount to murder, and that's the doctrine, not the culture. That's pretty dangerous. So she says, like, you would have to go in once a week and meet with this adult man who are just, like, married members of your society. She says that the bishop she met with who interrogated her about her sexuality as a teen was the father of a girl she had class with, which is so fucking sick. Yeah. Like nothing happened to her, but you're setting up a system that is so rife for exploitation because you're telling these young people that the most important thing in the world is to stay chaste. Otherwise you will go to hell and nobody will want you. You tell these young girls that these adult men have all the power in the world and are allowed to ask you anything and that God is on their side. And then you put them in a closed room and say, talk about sex. It's so dangerous. <laughs> yeah. So finally, one interview, her bishop said, do you ever touch yourself? And she was like, why would you ask me this? And she goes, I didn't at this point even know that sex could be pleasurable for women. I had been under the understanding that sex was something that you do for your husband to make him like you better, which in itself is very toxic. Right. She's like, touch myself. Like, yeah, when I'm washing my arms, I touch my arms. Yeah. She's like, what do you mean? My hands are in my lap right now. And he goes, I don't know why the spirit is telling me this, but I feel that this is an issue in your life and the Lord wants me to talk to you about it. If there's something you need to tell me, now's the time. Go ahead and get it off your chest. I can't help you fix it if I don't know exactly what we're dealing with. So she kind of lies. Yeah, and she says she felt so uncomfortable. And the problem is if you're evasive, they go, oh, if you're being evasive, that means that you have something to hide. And she goes, evasive didn't mean I was 15 and uncomfortable. Evasive meant that I was having sex and covering it up. And she goes, because it's your neighbor, because it's your father's family friend, because you feel bad for the guy, because you want the interrogation to end, because you want to try the repentance process, because you must be guilty or he wouldn't be asking, you feel compelled to tell him what he wants to hear. You imagine describing deeds not done but dreamed of and dark moments you hoped you would never see the light of day. And so she kind of like just starts saying yes to things that kind of aren't true, things that are true. She just starts saying whatever she thinks he wants to hear to get out of it. And luckily, she had gotten in the sweet spot where she confessed to just enough that he said, okay, she's not lying, but not so much that he would call her parents and get her in trouble. And even though this specific situation doesn't seem to have been any worse than that, which in itself is pretty bad, it's such a horrible environment for abuse. You're like setting up a perfect situation to abuse children. But the thing is, she wants so badly to follow. She's suspicious and she doesn't just believe it innately, but that's something she's always trying to beat about herself. So she says, after this situation, she doubled down on personal prayer, my commitment to fasting once a month, and my daily scripture study. Then she goes off to college. She gets into University of Utah with a full-ride scholarship for piano, but her parents wanted her to go to BYU. Everyone wanted to go to BYU. If you could get in there, you had to go there because that's where the most eligible men went. And since you went to college to become a wife, you should go where the men go. So she had to like pay for college. And she says she got there. And of course, nobody really liked her. She's standing out against the BYU girls. I was standing out for all the wrong reasons. I was too big, too loud and too much. I wanted to become marriageable. And that meant I needed to shelve whatever foolish ideas were filling my brain and replacing them with self-care, self-improvement and an eye single to the glory of a groom. The thing is, she's like very entrepreneurial. Yeah. So in college, one of her friends teaches her how to make these watches and she's like, that's cool. And she asks someone who owns a boutique, can I sell these there? And they're like, oh, these are too expensive. We can't really turn a profit on this. And she's like, well, explain to me how I would turn a profit. And once they do, she turns it into these earrings that are much cheaper to make. She starts selling them at the boutique. She starts selling them at every boutique in town. And she gets them into Nordstrom's. 
she loves working. So at one of the jobs she had was with her older sister. Jenny, at 23, was almost nine months pregnant. She left school at BYU after she got married and immediately started working to cover her husband's tuition. To everyone around us, she was living the dream. Went to BYU, found a man, bought a house, and had a baby. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. What hell? Imagine sitting there nine months pregnant working so that your husband can stay in college and you dropped out. Crazy. I can't believe that's the dream. I realized having a job was my thing. I was the only one who was always there ready to put a girl in a Ruva bed for 25 minutes or sell the most expensive tanning lotion. She is very good at upselling. She gives her little sales pitch. I'm convinced. I'm about to buy some fucking tanning lotion. I won BYU's Entrepreneur Student of the Year honorable mention my junior year. She lost to the guy who came up with 1-800-CONTACTS. So like, great business. Yeah, but businesswoman was not a mark of success in my family nor my community. If I brought it up, they just asked if I was dating anyone and changed the subject. Been there. (laughs) If you're ready for the next step in your self-care journey, but absolutely overwhelmed by the number of options, Care Of is a subscription service that ships high-quality, personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently to your door every month. Whether you're looking to feel more balanced, confident, energetic, or really any goals you have, with Care Of, you take a short and in-depth quiz about your lifestyle and health goals for a personalized, doctor-backed recommendation It takes the guesswork out of supplements completely. Care Of also has a free app that allows you to track your progress and how you feel so you can earn rewards like discounts and merch when you're consistent with taking your daily vitamins. Care Of's daily vitamin packs are great for on the go and they're made of plant-based compostable film so you can stress less about your impact on the environment. So I took the Care Of quiz online and first of all, I will say I really enjoyed how it helped me prioritize what I'm looking for in my health journey. Having to sit down and answer those questions, it helped me feel a lot more in touch with what I'm going for this year. My supplements arrived and I'm so happy to take them every day. I have a lot of friends who are very into the supplement game and every time I look into it, I feel so overwhelmed by the number of options. So having care of really prioritize my health goals with me and then give me the supplements that I need to achieve those goals. It's so great to have them in individual little packs. I don't have to think about it. I just take my supplements every morning with a little cup of water and then I'm drinking more water. For 15% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the code WORM50. That's 50% off your first order. Go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the code WORM50. She then gets into the BYU honor code, which is so fucking fucked. It just seems like if they ever get mad at you about anything, they can kick you out and ruin your life and make you still owe tuition. Yeah, I mean, the amount of teachers that she liked that got fired for vaguely leaning pro-woman. Or even just making a joke. Any tremor of feminism created a tidal wave reaction within the administration. She says that when the higher-ups got bored, they would just like go through different files and records to be like, who has done one thing that we could say is against the moral code? She then tells this weird story, which to me is very Julia Hart of her, about when she was working at the tanning salon. So she must have been between 19 and 20 at this point. And an older man who was 33 comes in, hits on her, takes her out to dinner. He like introduces her to the world and she's like, oh my God, this is a world I want to be a part of. He just takes her out to a restaurant and gets her a nightcap and then sucks on her finger and she like loses her mind. And when she gets home and tells her friend, they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? He's 33 and single and not Mormon. They're like, what kind of dried up piece of shit would be single at 33? He's either addicted to porn or he's out to seduce you and leave you scorned, Heather. You should stay away. I don't think you should go out with him again. He's too old to be single and too old to be dating you. 
okay, I do feel like the work they did was wrong, but the answer they got was right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and that's what I mean is like very Julia Hart, where Julia Hart was like, I can't believe as a woman I was told to cover up and it was my fault if a man had feelings for me. And because of that, now I bring dildos to my child's preschool. <laughs> and you're like, okay, I don't think that that's those or the, <laughs> there must be a middle ground, no? And I feel very, she's like, I think to this day, she regrets not fucking that 33-year-old. And it's like, Heather, he was taking advantage of you. He sounded like a big old dorko. You were like a 20-year-old virgin at a Mormon college who thought that like trying Sambuca. Yeah, she had, some, she had a cordial and was like, well, this is heaven. <laughs> I don't need more heaven than this. And can I say, we are heathens. We are city heathens, no? Yes. We're going to hell for sure. I have never been on a first date where a man sucked my finger at the table. That is repulsive. That is too far. Too fucking far. This man is uh, from a deeper circle of hell than I ever <laughs> hoped. He, I mean, she met him at a tanning salon where he was tanning his own body. Can you imagine a man with like those little goggle tan lines stepping out of the bed and being like, hey, little lady, I love that lotion. Can I suck your finger in public? Especially because I'm like 33. I literally cannot fathom a version of this man that isn't 61. When she said the year, I was doing it backwards from today. And I'm like, of course, he was 54 years old. He was absolutely disgusting. Thrice divorced. And then I was like, 33. Oh, that makes it worse. If yeah. Almost if he had been older older it would have been better but I'm like 33 you're still like in the prime of your life dude I'm like you're still just like a regular guy who's decided to be someone who like goes tanning and preys upon young women you're young enough that you could just go outside and get a tan or even go to law school and just try to become rich you have enough time to like rectify your life you don't have to take advantage of young girls go to the bar and meet a 26 year old they're still dumb exactly <laughs> there's dumb girls who can drink legally Leave Heather Gay alone. But I don't know she knows. I don't think she knows. I think she thinks he's the one who got away. So anyway, she's so sad that she doesn't get to date this guy and she doesn't know what to do. She's graduating college. She, she has did no boyfriend. All she has is a jewelry line that she took from her friend's living room to Nordstrom's. An Entrepreneur of the Year Award, a job. She's the manager of a very successful tanning salon. And she has a ton of promise, but she has no husband. So what is she supposed to do? They literally were like, we'll just send you around America looking for single young Mormons to marry. Yeah. Or you could do a mission. And the weirdest thing in this whole book, her roommate at the time comes in and goes, hey, I just talked to my mom and she felt impressed to tell you that if you have ever considered serving a mission, she will help pay for it. Yeah. So missions, they're quite expensive because but you- But like also they aren't. Okay. They aren't, but they are because you still have to pay for living expenses and it's obviously deeply subsidized. But you can't earn any money or anything. Yeah. To me, I'm like, wow, I don't think Ashley's mom would ever offer to pay for me to go to grad school if I was feeling lost. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Debbie? I do kind of feel like my mom, if she thought you were like really pathetic, <laughs> would, would be get, like. Just to get me away from you. <laughs> she'd be like, I've been thinking about it and I want to get Claire somewhere else. <laughs> Claire, have you thought about law school? You have to get out of Ashley's life. <laughs> Anyway, but the math is, she says it's like $500 a month, and I don't know if that was their spending money. I don't know what it was, but I think for 18 months, nine grand, I guess. I guess nine grand is not a lot for an 18-month excursion, but it is a lot to just have. Anyway, so she agrees to go on missionary. It seems like a good experience. And she does that thing that everybody does, whether you believe in astrology, whether you believe in Christianity, whether you believe in vibes. When things go well, you're like, 
that's my God. He has my back. And when things don't go well, you're like, I didn't count that. That's a fluke. No, well, when things don't go well, you're like, well, I wasn't serving my vibes. Yeah. That was my fault. Yeah, that, oh, that wasn't my sun sign. That was my rising sign. Oh, but wait, where's your Neptune? Wait, wait, wait. Is it a leap year? Okay. It's a different thing then. That's what I do as someone who's non-religious, but very superstitious. I'm just constantly like, oh, well, I put my left foot down first this morning. So that's why today went badly. <laughs> I love it. You got to have a belief system, man, or you'll never make it through this planet alive. So things are going very well because she is really anxious that she might end up getting sent on mission somewhere that sucks. Like Anaheim. <laughs> but then she gets sent to the south of France and she's like, God is good. My God is an awesome God. And Ashley, one day I hope you accept Jesus into your life. And then I hope we both accept Joseph Smith into our lives. And then I hope together we both go to the south of France. Ooh. For 18 months. <laughs> this whole podcast has been like proselytizing you guys into thinking stand-up comedy isn't humiliating. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, we're in our 30s going back to basements. That's not bad, is it? And you guys are like, no, that's fine. It's not fine. Someone rescue us. For the love of God, if you have a God that works, I'll accept it. I have to get out of this situation. My belief system is that if you work really hard, you can get a late night spot on Jimmy Kimmel and then a sitcom like Jerry Seinfeld. The clip will go viral on YouTube. <laughs> YouTube. <laughs> I don't think, think things go viral there. I've never been. Someone who only ever watches cats hang from trees will say that comedy clip was good, though. That woman is the one funny one. <laughs> I like watching people try to outrun rhinoceroses and also <laughs> that girl. As a hot take on dating. <laughs> So in order to prepare for a missionary, she has to go fully through the temple for the first time. And normally when you go through the temple, you're getting married. She's kind of like shirking the system. Yeah, life hack. And when you go through the temple, you get to get in on the inside of Mormonism. There's a lot that you never get to know until you're going through the temple because for the first time. Because they're only talked about in the temple. So it's like you can't know outside of it. I love the way that these like old school religions have incorporated modernity. So one of the things is in order to get into the temple, you have to have a worthiness interview. And then they give you a barcode that gets scanned at the outside of the temple. And that says whether or not you're allowed in and you have to re-up it every two years. And I'm just like, I cannot believe that the Mormon temple and a Hilton bedroom <laughs> are run with the same technology. <laughs> okay. So a couple of years before this, she'd been at a parade with her dad, a Pioneer Day parade. And protesters who are protesting Mormonism, I guess, went through the parade wearing full temple gear. And she didn't know what it was. They were in this like white gauzy gear with like white robes. She said it looked like a Freemason outfit, but I'm like, okay, that is not a touchstone for me culturally, actually. I literally don't even know what a Freemason is. And green aprons and funny – the man had a funny hat like a that looked like a hat. chef. And yeah. the woman had a veil. So she didn't know what it was. She asked her dad and her dad was like, don't even look at it. What they're doing is offensive. All the parents were like shielding the children from looking. And I was just like, oh my god, is this like an abortion thing? Like what is happening? Years later, she's crawling around her mom's closet and she pulls out similar clothes from a suitcase. What it is is that when you go into the temple, you wear these – outfits that are never to be seen or talked about outside the temple. In the last couple of years, I have become a nails girl. I cannot believe how much more put together I feel when I have my nails done. And going to the salon every single week, every couple weeks, I just don't have the time for it, especially because of how often my nails chip when I have to shove my fingers in Bug's mouth to pull out whatever stick she found in the road. Finding the perfect at-home manicure solution has, dare I say, changed my life. 
The Olive and June Manny system has everything you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. You can customize it with your choice of six polishes and the colors that they have to choose from. It's everything you could ever want and more. The colors we got, I am obsessed with the new seashell set. I love an iridescent color. The purple puka is, it's like subtle, but it's so fun. And I love a subtle, fun pop of color because a lot of my clothes are very neutral, but I'm colorful at heart. This polish doesn't chip. And listen, I've had it on for about a week now and it looks pretty flawless. It lasts seven days or more. And when you break it down, it comes out to about $2 a manicure. Being able to get salon worthy nails at home with Olive and June is an absolute game changer for me. I throw on some Real Housewives and just do my nails. Bug takes a nap. I come out feeling better about how I look. She comes out well rested. We're all happy. I'm so happy to have a full manicure set at home because I can change color on a whim. Or I can just feel more put together without having to wake up, check and see if the salon is open, go put my name on the wait list, fit it in with my day so that I don't have something to do with my hands right after, especially when it gets cold out and I have to walk home from the salon without gloves on so that my nails don't smudge. We're not doing that anymore. To try it for yourself, visit oliveandjune.com slash worm for 20% off your first Manny system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash worm for 20% off your first Manny system. So she has to go to this intense class to learn about being a missionary. It's supposed to take six weeks and they're like, oh, we could do it all today, which I, I don't know if that's good education. And she goes, as long as I learn what the green aprons are all about, I'm good. I said jokingly. It was the first time I had ever openly acknowledged the clothes I had seen that day at the parade and the possibility that they were connected to the temple. The two volunteers looked directly at each other and then directly through me. They were not pleased. We won't be getting into anything like that, the man said. The temple clothing is symbolic and sacred and not to be discussed outside of the temple. It's deeply offensive. So what seems weird is that it's never seems to be discussed anywhere. So now we're going to get into what I guess are like secrets. So here's something I actually genuinely feel bad about because like whatever, we make fun of everybody's religion here. We've had Christians come at us and be like, you're so mean about Christians. And I'm like, I don't know, man. We're pretty mean about everybody, I think. I do feel bad that the only like truly interesting parts of this book, because it's not super reflective and it's not super researched outside of her personal experience, are the parts where she's just truly telling religious secrets. And I don't feel great about any religion having a secret. I don't know. I am like, that's the only interesting part. Here we go. Here are the secrets of Mormonism. I guess we did it for Scientology. So Yeah. And I guess I don't really feel like we revealed because she never really learns the motive of anything either. She's just saying what the rituals are. I don't know what secrets we're revealing other than like what they wear. Okay. So they get in there and basically it starts right on time. They're prompt as hell. And she gets there and they have to do this full wash ritual, which sounds very nice. She loves this part. There's two women there and they come and they have like oil on their hands and they touch all the parts of your body and like they try to bless them. I find it really interesting because I think a lot of religions have a very unique washing and cleansing ritual. And I think that's very interesting to me. So she gets washed and that's when she puts on her garments for the first time. And then she layers on the robes and the things for the temple. She puts on the garments first and then you're supposed to wear like your bra and underwear over the garments. Like the garments touch your skin closest. I don't know if she ever explicitly says this in here, but basically the garments are supposed to like remind you not to be sexy. Cool. To keep your body to yourself or whatever. And then you put underwear on top and then there's like another white thing that you put on top of that. And then you get out there and there's a movie, which makes me laugh. And the movie is about the story of Adam and Eve. And then at one point in the middle of the movie... Eve, that whore, takes a bite of the apple. You know the deal. You know how all women are worse and it's one bitch's fault. (laughs) You've heard this story. It's always a bitch's fault. 
I guess the white gauze is to symbolize like your nakedness. And then you put clothes on top of the white gauze, which are on top of your underwear, which are on top of garments. So you're like layered. It's so funny to have clothes that symbolize nakedness. <laughs> you're like, that fucking Eve. <laughs> we can't even be naked to symbolize nakedness. <laughs> Anyway, and then you go up to these veiled sections and there's a man behind and there's cutouts. It sounds like operation or something. And basically, you have to like learn a secret handshake. And I think it's supposed to emulate when you die and go to heaven, there'll be angels there. And if you don't know the secret handshake, you can't get into heaven, (sighs) which feels obvious. Also, like imagine you die from like a head injury and so your brains get jumbled up and then you're at heaven and you like forgot the handshake. I don't think you carry your injuries with you. I'll tell you one thing we don't know. And that's what happens after you die. I am sure that if there is a heaven, you don't go up mangled the way you left. I'm sure of it. I think when you die, you get to be like your hottest self. (laughs) Your hottest, smartest self. Like fresh off the SATs. You know all those vocab words by heart. You've got your acne figured out. I'm pretty big on lights out. Yeah, me too. That's what I'm hoping for. So then they find out all these things come directly from God. And she thinks it's goofy. So they do this like weird handshake ritual where you put your elbow on your neighbor and you hold the other neighbor's hand. You're like in a circle. I didn't honestly understand what was going on. I don't think she understood what was going on while living it. And I don't think she could explain it very well. And she's like looking around trying to make eye contact with her dad and with people she knew to be like, we all think this is goofy, right? But no one was giving goofy signals back. I knew in that moment that mocking any of this was futile. There was no inside joke to get in on. If I wanted to belong, if I wanted to progress, I had to straighten up. So I snapped out of my fear and doubts and I leaned in. I leaned into the weirdness because as far as I knew, it was true. It had to be. It was all too absurd to be made up. And more than that, it had to be true because there in the crowd believing it was true were the people who meant most to me. Everything felt absolutely absurd, but I figured it was just because I wasn't spiritual enough. So then she goes and she does it and she gets out. And the weirdest thing is that the minute you leave, you take it clothes off and you never speak about it again. She's like, you don't go home and rehash it. This book had me on the brink of conversion. And the thing that unsold me on Mormonism, this is like the worst part of it to me, is the lack of a post game. I love a rehash after an event. That's what I fucking live for. So then she gets into what really freaked her out, which is that I can't believe everybody in my life has known about this and I had no idea it was coming. She's like, I cannot believe I've been like a full-on card-carrying Mormon and everybody in my life has been Mormon and I had not a hint that this was coming. And she goes, everyone was in on the secret and not just my family and friends I knew and trusted, but every single member of the church, the fresh-faced missionary, the sweet older couple, the frazzled mom, even the delinquent apostates who had left the church managed to keep these oaths a secret. Was I the only one who thought it was shocking? They are so lucky I'm not a Mormon because I can keep my mouth shut for shit. I guess you just like wouldn't have been. (laughs) A Mormon? Yeah. I mean, you're born where you're born. So then she has to go on her mission. She goes to the south of France and it turns out it's actually like not so fun. You wake up at six, you work until 10 p.m., you have no money. Seven days a week for 18 months. And you have a buddy system. I guess they like really figure out who the bad girls are and they put them within the absolute door because she has the meanest, most intense buddies. One makes her wake her up every morning at 6 a.m. with like acapella hymns. (laughs) You just always have somebody watching you and telling you you're not good enough and like there to tell on you. And you're not allowed to do anything without your buddy. And she's like, the only time I ever had fun was for a few months I had a nice buddy and we would wake up before dawn and go on a run before their 6 a.m. meetup. And like she could smell the pastries in the air and that was the only time she had a good time. She's like, they didn't want us there. People would always like yell at us and be like, we don't want you here. Get out of here. You're in a cult. And she barely spoke French. And they just rang doorbells all day, every day. And then at one point, they switched tactics. We were instructed to get inside and kneel in prayer within the first minute of meeting them. I 
feel like it's so interesting, the brains of religious people versus non-religious people, because as a non-religious person, if someone busted through my door and just got on their knees to be like, I'm here to save you, I'd be like, this is goofy. But I feel like as a religious person, you're like, oh, someone busts through my door and gets on their knees to pray for me. Like, what a wonderful religious sentiment. So I don't think that that's what they thought it was. They said it actually was quite effective because people were so freaked out. They didn't know what to do. So they would just get on their knees and kneel. Like, it was like a shock thing. I hate to quote How I Met Your Mother, but do you remember that episode where that oh, guy- the naked thing? Yeah, where he would just get naked and he was like, I don't know, 30% of the times women don't know what to do, so they just get naked and have sex with me. I think it was that mentality. Oh my God. Do you think that episode has turned into sexual assault? Yes. <laughs> but I think like people are just so freaked out. They're like, okay, they don't know what to do. Yeah. And the thing is, she's an incredible salesman. So she actually converts, was it 16 people in 18 months and says that's like the best in the game. She says the average is one person a mission trip, which is 18 months. And I'm like, okay, at those numbers, you guys need to quit. Take the money that people were paying to send you out there and just give it to people. Because this is an impossible task. So you have to find somebody on the street who's like open to a new religion, which already feels difficult. I don't know anyone who's like looking to take on a new belief system. And I hope somebody in the town square is selling one. I guess because it's a numbers game, there are people who are looking to join cults. And I think that if they are looking to passively follow a new leader with their whole heart, but also too passive to leave their house and look for it, and you jump into their house and kneel, they're ready to join you. But it's such a hard sell because already you have to get them to talk. And I mean, you guys know those clipboard people. I'm not talking to anybody. And then once they're like, all right, I'm interested. I'll get a baptism. You have to say, okay, in order to join us, you have to give up alcohol. You have to give up cigarettes. You have to give up sex. And then you have to tithe. You have to give 10% of your earnings. Remember when I dated that guy who was like 45 minutes late to meet up with me because he was talking to a clipboard person and I never saw him again? Yes. <laughs> to get anybody is impressive, honestly. And she got 16 people. And her big reward was at one point there was like a switch off of buddy system and there was six hours where she was supposed to have a third person come in and tide her over. And her boss was like, you know what? Spend the afternoon alone. Well, he said, go to your room and wait. And she went and saw a movie and was like, if anybody finds out, I'm dead. And this is like a 23-year-old woman. And she says it was so heartbreaking and difficult because every day you woke up exhausted and nobody liked you and everybody shut you down and you felt so unsuccessful. That she had to like learn to live in this bubble. And she calls it her Glenda the Good Witch bubble where she was like, I believe what I'm doing. I'm throwing myself in wholeheartedly. She was like, if you did not 100% commit to the bit, it was going to break you because it was so fruitless. And she says the capacity to shut off an entire part of yourself is a terrifying thing. Even more thrilling and terrifying is the capacity to do it well. There's something to be said about preaching eternal life while slowly dying inside. As it turns out, saving souls can be soulless work. It was painful. It was hard. And it wore us down. It more than pulled on our heartstrings and it strung us out wholeheartedly. One girl in her bunk had an absolute mental breakdown and started like screaming and crying about how everyone that they couldn't save was going to hell. And then you were talking about earlier that you were saying one of the reasons she might have been such a good Mormon salesman is because she herself had doubts. Yeah. And so it might have been easier for her to sell to someone because she was coming from a standpoint of here's why you might not believe this instead of a standpoint of like, well, obviously what I'm saying is the only true thing. So, of course, it comes to an end, as all good things do. And she's like, you know what? I might go to D.C. and get a master's degree. And her dad is like, I don't think that's a great plan for you. In D.C., everyone's kind of single and career minded. And you really need to focus on finding a guy and getting married and, you know, settling down. This was my dad. And I just wanted to make him proud. I wanted to make him happy and prove to him that I could be trusted. So she moves out to California because I guess there are these pockets of towns where lots of young single Mormons live to, like, meet each other and find husbands and wives. So she moves to Huntington Beach, where there's a lot of hot ones. And this is where she meets Billy Gay. 
So Billy Gay is tall and she's obsessed with him. He had worked at his dad's company, but eschewed the easy fast track of nepotism in the corporate ladder. He was an artist, a creative, and he didn't want an office job. He wanted to be an entrepreneur. So he made like surfing vids. She's like, he's not a normal rich guy who just went and worked hard with his dad. He's a cool rich guy who more honorably didn't work at all. (laughs) (laughs) We love a nepo baby who says, I'm not going to call in these favors and get a job. They fell in love. They got together right away. They were so head over heels for each other. They got engaged three months after meeting. She was trying to boink him like crazy. The sexual tension surrounding our relationship was so thick. It was like walking through sheets of cobwebs. I couldn't think straight. I couldn't focus. I just wanted to be with Billy to scratch the itch to clear our heads. One night, I begged him to just run away and have sex with me. Another fun thing about Billy is it turns out he's rich as hell. His family owns Nutraceutical, a vitamin mineral brand worth more than $400 million. And also they're like super Mormon connected. His grandfather was the driver of Howard Hughes and his Mormon mafia. She doesn't really get into it, but from what I can surmise, Howard Hughes ran Vegas and all of his henchmen were Mormons and the head henchman was this guy, Bill Gay. And she kind of is like, who knows what their real relationship was like? So I guess they were lovers. Ooh, I could see Mormons being excellent henchmen in Vegas because they're not going to drink. They're not going to smoke. So that's something I'm actually kind of interested in. And so she's like begging to have sex with him. And he says, trust me, do it the right way. Once we're married, you'll be having more sex than all of your single friends combined. If all of her friends are Mormon and they're all virgins, that's not a lot of sex. That's one. If all of your friends who aren't having sex combined is zero, then it's not hard to beat them. (laughs) Anyway, so they get married. They have a nice little marriage in the temple. On their honeymoon, that's when everything went to shit. I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, when you get married and you're young and you don't really know a lot about relationships and about the world, you have a couple of good years of marriage before things go bad. But they had nary a day. At their wedding, his aunt gave her a book called Man and Wife. And I guess it's all about how to make your husband happy. And she's like, it's crazy because you go from don't ever kiss anybody to if you're not keeping him completely sexually satisfied, you're a failure and he's allowed to cheat. My value in the community was tied to my purity. It was based on keeping something that I was about to give away. Overnight, I went from safeguarding my virginity at the most sacred treasure to highlighting passages out of a book about faking an orgasm so that my husband never felt inadequate. So here's where it gets very confusing. So one of the things that Heather Gay is not good at is giving details and everything is so vague that you're never really sure what's happening. I love being with Billy. It felt natural. It felt right. As lovers, we were compatible enough. It was just in every other department that we'd discover edges. What edges? She doesn't give us any edges. She just says on the honeymoon, they had nothing to talk about. I mean, they spent time together before this. Like all of a sudden, it just dried up. It's so funny because I think one of the things that people say when they save themselves for marriage is they're like, well, we don't want to get married based on sex. We want to really get to know each other first. But then you see here, the downfall of that is so much of getting to know each other was clouded by being horny and like rushing to the altar so you could have sex. And then the minute they had sex, she's like, oh, I have nothing left to say to you. It just seems like he hated her. But what's really confusing is the way that she tells it. It seems like they had sex and then immediately they were like, oh, I hate you. It was like a real post-nut clarity sitch. Yeah. And I get how over time, and it wouldn't even take that much time, like maybe a couple months, you'd be like, oh, you're not who I thought you were. Or we move in together and now there's all these difficult things for us to handle. But it really seems like the minute they had sex, something happened because they're on this honeymoon in Hawaii trying to figure out a way to build the time. And they're so unhappy. And they go see a movie. They go to Scream 3 and there's a joke with a dildo and he storms out and demands his money back and she's humiliated. But I'm like, why on your Hawaii vacation honeymoon were you going to see Scream 3 in the middle of the afternoon? 
Why not snorkel? You don't even have to snorkel. Grab a fucking sheet and go lay face down on the beach for five whole days. Okay, so here's a metaphor I don't really understand. I had heard horror stories from friends who thought they were marrying a vanilla sex guy, but discovered on their wedding night that they had actually married a rum raisin. What's a rum raisin? She's also so sexual that I'm like, would that be bad to you? It almost feels like he didn't like how sexual she was. It seems like he was turning her down. I don't know. I can't get what's happening straight. She says, in the temple, men make covenants that bestow them with the dominion over all the earth and the inhabitants therein, and women make covenants to obey them. I was taught to say no to a lot of things outside of our faith, but inside the faith, I was only taught to bow my head and say yes. Billy was raised in the same system of power that I was. He'd always pushed up against expectations, rebelled against demand by moving to Huntington Beach to surf, by quitting his dad's company to start his own. But with a healthy mix of his bad luck and my desperation, he came into my orbit and I snared him, pulling him back into the magnet that he'd been so tirelessly working to repel. So I don't understand because she like here is saying that he didn't want to be Mormon and that's why it didn't work out. But it's like, well, you didn't want to be Mormon either. It's so unclear what was going wrong. And I believe it was horrible and I'm on her side, but I'm just kind of like, what happened? In this quote, it was clear that I had just married a man who was already giving 100% when I thought he was only giving 30 and he wasn't ever going to be able to do the math. He couldn't see the differential and that was terrifying. So it seems like she had kind of like a schoolgirl crush on him. You know, when you haven't even thought past someone's hot guy facade, you're just like, okay, he's my crush and I'm obsessed with him. I think she was just obsessed with him and like didn't think about any of his personality traits. And she kind of was like, oh, well, he's holding back because we're not married yet. And he doesn't care about the things I like and being nice to me and being cool because we're not married yet. Do you know how some people in this day and age of situationships are like, well, our relationship sucks. He doesn't care about me. He never calls me first. He never texts me first. He never buys me dinner. He never does anything. But once we're officially boyfriend and girlfriend, all of that will change. I think it was like that with marriage. I'm chasing him. I'm going after him. I'm obsessed with him. And once we're married, we'll be husband and wife. But she was like, oh, once we're married, he still is not going to reciprocate anything. We could have solved all our problems with a weekend in Atlantic City where we had sex and realized that we had nothing in common. But instead, upon our return, we attended marriage counseling pretending to be a cool, progressive, evolved couple when in reality, we were both freaking out, terrified that we had made a horrible mistake. See, I kind of wonder if she could have solved everything if they had had sex in Atlantic City one time and realized she didn't like him. I don't know if they together were freaking out about making a horrible mistake. I think he was just like a passive asshole and she had made a horrible mistake. I guess he really didn't want a wife at all. And that was the problem. And he went along with it to have sex. And then the fact that she even existed was annoying to him. Yeah. She says, for so long, I've been caught up in this holding pattern, living single in search of the next step, a man. And here he was. The fact that I kind of hated him and he kind of hated me was small potatoes. So they try to make it work for a really long time. She tries to be the perfect wife. She talks about trying to be his help me. I knew what was expected of me. And I figured the more I fulfilled my role, the better our marriage would be. And the more that Billy would like me. And he takes a lot of her attempt at help meeting to be her trying to steal attention. Whenever she tries to do a really good job with an event or anything homemaking related, he thinks that she's making it all about her and overdoing it. So she says, three months into the subscription, once the excitement of the new home died down, I called my mom. I told her that I had started to sense that my joy in my life beginning was somehow creating the demise of Billy's. He wasn't working on his entrepreneurial pursuits. He wasn't surfing. Instead, he now had to preside and provide. Maybe he married her thinking she'd be like this cool girl who wouldn't expect anything of him, but she was trying to be like the perfect Mormon wife. And she was like, well, where are you? I made dinner for you to make you happy. And he's like, I don't ever want to see you. (laughs) What do you mean you made me a home? I don't want a home with you. 
So she tells her mom and she's hoping that somebody will be like, listen, it's hard, but it'll get better or it's okay. She basically said like, I could get a divorce and her mom just goes, join the club and figure it out. It's too late now. You can't get a divorce. That's just how it is. I began to regret ever pretending I wasn't a gold digger when Billy declared that despite having access to a private jet and first class travel, his airline of choice was Southwest. I do feel like this is a way that men kind of control people where they'll have all this money and they'll be like, but you don't get to enjoy it. Yeah. Because if you want to enjoy a nice life, you're a dumb whore. I stand by everything I said last week, which is, listen, if you're going to marry a billionaire, be a gold digger. Like yes. it is honestly worse to have access to a private jet, but insist on making your wife fly a shitty airline. Like if you're going to be rich as hell, at least live it up. I agree. If you're going to marry rich, you should get to live rich. Okay. So she says it's a joke for Christmas. She gets him one stock in Southwest. And he doesn't even get the joke and no one thinks it's funny. Everyone's like, oh, you're a silly wife. It's weird that she's so silly. I do kind of think her gift was past progressive. In Huntington Beach, I had mastered managing Billy with kid gloves. I let him do his thing, molding and shifting into whatever needless brainless form was required of me. We fell into an easy, reassuring routine. I sat with him on the couch and watched hours of Survivor and The Amazing Race. I begged with him to the beach and walked along the boardwalk. I went to Wahoo's and graciously shared one plate of two fish tacos and asked for a complimentary cup of water. It was soul crushing, but it wasn't terrible. That sounds terrible. And then they get a baby. Billy is obviously floundering. I guess he's just like a dud rich kid. And now it's her fault. Now that he has a wife and a child on the way, there's an expectation that he'll be able to provide. But the truth is he didn't eschew his father's $400 million corporation because he had dreams of being a surf director. He was a <laughs> loser. He just wanted to be a dud. And now it's yeah. highlighted. Now he has a family to provide for. So they have a baby. She channels all of her energy into hand knitting, very elaborate outfits for the baby. <laughs> And he's always like, that's so over the top. But the thing is, she is just teeming with creative energy and she has nothing to do. She says, I was embodying the unique paradox of being an overachiever and a Mormon woman who finally got her man. I had clawed my way to the top only to be told to sit on my hands and be satisfied. This is such an interesting peek into the inside because I've always said this about mommy bloggers and stuff. People whose whole thing is proving that nothing is more fulfilling than being a stay-at-home mom who have like built an entire company. I'm like, uh, uh, uh. I now feel bad because I see it's not them who's like, I'm so fulfilled and I don't want anything else. It's their world that told them you're not allowed to want anything else. And so somehow you have to monetize how happily contented you are. You have to figure out an activity around proving how content you are. And so if that is putting on Instagram how happy and content you are, that's like a very socially acceptable way for them to have a creative endeavor that doesn't take away from their God-given goals. Are you ready to smell better naked? Let's face it. Our underarms aren't the only place we have body odor. And that's why I am so thankful for today's sponsor, Loom, whole body deodorant for pits, privates, and beyond. Created by an OBGYN who saw too many women being overtreated with antibiotics that they didn't need for external day-to-day odor, she discovered the vagina is not to blame for odor below the belt and external odor needed an external solution, so she created Loom. It's clinically proven to block odor all day and controls odor for 72 hours. There has never been a deodorant like Loom, and they are giving new customers a limited-time discount of $5 off Loom's starter pack with the code WORM at loomdeodorant.com. I am loving the Loom Starter Pack, which lets you build a custom bundle of their best-selling products and customize your scent. It comes with a full-size stick deodorant, a cream deodorant tube, and two free products of your choice, like acidified body wash or wipes. 
I personally am a huge fan of the clean tangerine scent. I'm a real citrus girl and I think it smells so good without being overwhelming in any way. Just a clean little air of good smell around you. You can use Loom products on your pits, under boobs, thigh folds, belly buttons, butt crack, vulva, and feet. I have used it on my pits and my feet so far. I used some of the cream on my feet because let me tell you what, I always make fun of Claire for having stinky feet, but I think I might be projecting. So I'm excited to see how this changes my life. Loom was made with the most sensitive parts of the body in mind. You know, like the part that men can never seem to find, but Loom can be used anywhere externally on your body to fight odor. And I'm talking sex life altering. It's easy to use. The sticks go on just like regular deodorant and they work on private parts too, like anywhere that you shave or wax. Not only is Loom effective, it's seriously safe and pH optimized to safely protect our pH and control odor. So what are you waiting for? Get your Loom starter pack today. With over 150,000 five-star reviews, we're so confident you'll love Loom. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Loom starter pack with the code WORM at loomdeodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit loomdeodorant.com and use the code WORM. So then she has a second baby, Ashley Rose, Georgia McLean, and everything is great. They're all so happy. Mark doesn't do shit. It's just her alone, but she doesn't care. She can work hard. She actually starts getting into photography, and she becomes like a really big photographer on Instagram of her own family. But then they accidentally have a third kid. And this is when the scales begin tipped, and he's like pissed. He's just like being bitchy all the time. I don't know if there was like a specific thing that happened, but he would just kind of shuffle around the house giving nothing. Somewhere along the line, our marriage had hit the iceberg. I had sold Billy on what he could see on the surface, and as the ship drove slowly closer and closer, it unknowingly struck the bottom. By the time either of us had noticed, it was a little too late. I pivoted and adapted and steered in the opposite direction, but the more I tried to fix the problem, the deeper and wider the gash became, tearing away at the base of the boat, slowly filling it with water while we lay heedless on the deck. Do you see what I mean about these metaphors that you're like, okay, but what are you saying? Like, what happened? What did you say to each other? another thing I feel bad about is how embedded in her thought process to be like, I was too much and this isn't what Billy thought he was getting. I was loud and overdid everything. But he sucks. Yeah. And then in the distance, a signal flare, a sign from God in response to our mayday. I needed something, anything to shift my focus. So she gets like a fancy job at the temple and she's like, oh, great. Something I can pour all my energy into. And he is so unproud of her. Everything she does annoys him. He just cannot stand her. Everything she does and tries to do best, he's like, oh, you want attention so bad. You make everything about you. And she'll like try to make a nice dinner. And he's like, God, you need credit for everything. He just cannot stand her. He doesn't like that she's ambitious. No. I guess he mistook her ambition for like not being a regular Mormon. But actually, he needed someone so obedient. Yeah. And what he got was somebody ambitious. And that was a misread on his part. I think he mistook ambition for loving Mormonism, but all she had at that point was to like put all of her energy into proving what a good Mormon she was. But she just wanted to do everything the most. I think she might be one of those people who needs like one hour of sleep a night. Yeah. And she just keeps working. And she says she's in there and looking for anybody to be like, hey, yeah, marriage can be tough, but you'll get there. And nobody is ever in it with her. Nobody ever makes eye contact and is like, hey, I know what you're going through. And so she is just floundering and floundering and trying harder to be perfect. Here's another metaphor that I just don't even know what she's talking about. To think that my service would have saved us was naive. For even though it was a faith-affirming thing, it was the wrong faith-affirming thing. Ambitious women aren't rewarded for their drive and ingenuity. 
pig bladder balloons aren't of this world, but are instead fictitious pipe dreams sold to the prairie girls in storybooks. No one cares if you can turn a corn cob into a baby doll in the 21st century. Do what you want, but make sure dinner is on the table by five. What is she talking about? So I know that literally she's referring to the Laura Ingalls Wilder books that she related to as a kid because they were on the prairie. She was kind of a prairie girl. But this idea that back in the day that those little girls and their ingenuity in making dolls and toys was then rewarded with entrepreneurial pursuits and a non-sexist environment where women could run businesses. No, they got the chicken pox and died. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think women were expected to have dinner on the table back then, too. So I like, what are you talking about? It just doesn't even matter. So there's more. My marriage was failing. The warning signs were clear. The deck was flooding, blah, 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 blah. Her marriage is a boat. And it's not going good. Finally, the breaking point is Ashley's baptism. So when you're eight years old in Mormonism, you're at the age of accountability, which is literally like at eight years old, you know the difference between right and wrong. And so you get baptized so that you have no sins. And then from there on out, if you sin, that is on you. So for the baptism, she decides to do this really elaborate, beautiful baptism. She decides to have this huge white party. And then Billy is like, we need to move the party because my sister is flying in late. And she's like, but I sent out invitations with the time on it, and I have vendors, and I have speakers. People were invited to it. And then not only is his sister flying in late, but for some reason, his mom is like, well, I have to be at the airport to pick her up. And it's like, well, why? So he won't drop it. He keeps being like, why can't we just move the baptism? And she's like, what the fuck do you mean? And he's like, oh, you want to have this big, fancy baptism? So everyone says, oh, Heather, you had such a great baptism. And she's like, yeah, I do, honestly. And he's like, I just don't understand why you can't just tell people this a different time. She's like, because I sent out invitations. Including to the people who are now flying in late and assuming I'll move the baptism for them. And her family is calling her being like, Heather, just move the baptism. My dad gently suggested I make a flyer and take it around to all the friends in the neighborhood announcing the time change. Billy's really upset. Is it that big of a deal to change the time? Just change the time. That is crazy to say to a woman who clearly cares a lot about lavish parties to be like, just make a flyer. That's insane. So then Billy says, do the baptism when you want. I'll move out next week. And she accepts it. She's like, you know what? Fine. Bye. So she does the baptism when she wants. She does delay it, though. It starts when it's supposed to, but things don't go on time because they wait for the mom and the sister. And they try to have fun throughout it. And she's like watching her daughter get baptized and she feels guilty. And she goes, this is the life for which she was assigned. Choice, autonomy, independence were all secondary to the throne and the kingdom she was inheriting. And I was willing to abdicate my throne for just a singular moment of true sovereignty and recognition. The absurdity of it all was just spinning. And so she's having this moment of being like, you know what? This really isn't worth it. But this isn't when she breaks up with Mormonism. But she and Billy start just kind of coexisting. He never moves out until finally one day they sit down for a conversation. And he's like, what should we do? And she was like, I thought you're leaving. And he's like, oh, you want me to? So he moves out and she pretends like he didn't. She's just living life. It's almost Christmas time. And so she just pretends that they're still a family. She's like, I would have photoshopped him into the card if that hadn't been obvious. She's doing everything to avoid it. Meanwhile, she hears that her husband is staying with a single friend and he took the boat out with his friends and a bunch of single girls. So he's partying and she's like, you know what? We're still married. We're not even getting a separation. This is just like a halftime. And she says, you know, halftime when nobody's watching you, you can do whatever you want. I'm like, I don't know if that's really an apt analogy here. Yeah, especially that the Super Bowl was just this weekend and halftime is the thing that people watch the most. But she's like, okay, so you party, I party, and then we'll figure it out later. She meets this woman, Diana, who goes on to be on The Bachelor. And she meets all of these people who are like former Mormons, less practicing Mormons. Loosey-goosey Mormons. And she's like, okay, there is a middle ground here. And so she like starts kind of the second life where she tests these things out. She has friends that she'll go have a martini with. 
And she really does not think that she and Billy are going to get a divorce. She thinks that they're just having this weird separation in the same way that she didn't think past the marriage, which was like, okay, I just had to get to marriage and then we're all good. She's still not thinking past and then we'll get back together because and then what? Like right now you hate him. You're so happy that he's gone. She had three children under eight. She was raising them alone. She was trying to protect her reputation. She just wasn't forward thinking at all. She was just like, it'll write itself. She believed in the idea that she had been sold, which is if you just try hard enough, you will have a family in heaven. And I think she genuinely didn't believe in divorce. She's like, I know people who did horrible things and they just eke it out. She says, Billy would come in and out of our lives with a sense of ease of someone who has never had their steps questioned. He would come over casually and just walk into the house, not even knocking. It was frustrating, a reminder of the chain of command. I was still his wife. And even though I may not be working with him, I worked for him. His casual attitude about his new role in our life grated on me. I was jealous that he was able to have a family at his leisure at what felt like my expense. Then she changes the locks on him because she feels very stressed out by the way that suddenly he would just be there and she wanted to have some kind of warning. I don't take Billy's side at all. He sucks. And I don't even think it's her fault. I think it's the culture she was raised in. She will do anything to not have a conversation. Like she can't have a conversation because her job is to be dutiful. So she feels like she needs to be resourceful to get what she wants instead of just being like, could you text me when you're on the way? I don't even know that he would have. I think he might have been pissed about her even asking. But because she gives so little information here, the fact that she had to like get the locks changed, it feels a lot more dramatic than she's letting us hear about. She says she changed the locks and he responded by being messier around the house when he would come back in. And I'm like, okay, well, it seems like you guys never had a conversation ever again. You just hated each other quietly around your children. I wanted him to make an effort and be a partner. I wanted him to just be my husband or at least pretend. She really does hate that he just doesn't give a fuck. So at this point, he hasn't lived with her for months. And he's obviously living this single life. And she says that he could tell that everyone on his side, like his family and stuff, are all supporting him. Meanwhile, she's not told a soul in her life. She's just lying and saying, oh, he's doing good. But things really take a turn when one night she had to go out for something and he was supposed to watch the kids. And when she came back, he was preparing to leave, loading things into his car as the girls run around with their diapers full, bellies empty, and snot running down their cherubic faces. I was frustrated, disappointed, and reminded of exactly why Billy and I had never worked in the first place. The things I valued were of little worth to him. Our priorities were different. Our lived experiences foreign. This is not just different values. These are like children that you're not parenting that are yours. Your values are different in that you value making sure your children are safe and healthy. And he doesn't. He really is just a loser. So that night he leaves and he left something behind. And when he came back to get it, she like bars him from entering the house. They have a physical altercation at the door where she's trying to not let him in. Of course, he's stronger than her. He knocks her down. And so she runs to the phone and calls the police. And when they come over, they're like, you can give a witness statement or not. But at the end of the day, it's not up to you to press charges. So he ultimately gets filed domestic violence in front of a minor. And she does not tell us really what happened here. And I don't know what happened other than he like broke into the house and she didn't want him there. I don't know if something else happened because it seems like that's not technically breaking and entering if it's the house that you pay for and there's like no custody. I guess the thing is I don't think the police are quick to side with a woman. So there must have been physical evidence that is quite damning. Yeah, it's very confusing what had happened. But she says that she was hoping this would bring them back together, that this would freak him out and he would just come home and be a husband. She was still rooting to end up together. She was hoping by barring him from the house, he would then beg to come home. So he serves her with divorce papers and she can't believe it. I will say her friend does one of the most perfect things I've ever heard a friend do in the midst of getting served divorce papers. She takes her front row to a Kelly Clarkson concert. I can't think of a more powerful person to see just as you're on the brink of divorce. I swear to fucking God, if you ever get a divorce, that's what we're doing. If I ever get a divorce, take me. First, you go to a Kelly Clarkson concert, and then you go to the Drew Barrymore show. Oh, my God. 
You get the anger out, then you heal. <laughs> a perfect day. With titans of daytime television. <laughs> I didn't mean that sarcastically. I really do think they are. <laughs> so she's kind of like, all right, fuck it. I'm on my own now. I'm going to go crazy. And she starts partying with her friends. And one of those nights she gets... I don't know what she gets. Maybe a DUI, maybe not a DUI. She gets pulled over and she says she blows a .05, which is below the legal limit, but they still say they're charging her with a DUI. First, they're like, it's a little DUI and then it's a big DUI and then it seems like nothing at all happened. But she's very apologetic and she's like, I didn't even have a drink. I just had sips of my friend's drinks. It is still a drink, but she was below the legal limit, which feels insane to be charged with anything then. Why do we have a legal limit if it's arbitrary? And then she went to her bishop and he was like, listen, you're going through a lot. The Lord forgives you. Forgive yourself and don't tell anybody what happened. And she's like, all right, don't tell anyone I'm getting divorced. Don't tell anybody I got a DUI. Secrets, baby. And she's like, I'm coming back to the church harder now. That was a mistake. Everything bad has happened because I've been sinning. And then one day she's at a meeting for the Relief Society, which she's the head of. It's her very important position within the church. And she just kind of lets it out. She says, you know, Billy and I are not together right now. And another member of the church says, you have to run. And it's the first person who's told her it's okay to not be with Billy anymore. So she's stressed out. She actually gets Bell's palsy, which is when half of your face just like randomly freezes. And I guess she was like super fucking stressed out. And to her, she's like, God hates me. And there's this story in the Bible where a man is such a heathen that he's struck dumb and mute by God so that he stops blaspheming himself. And Heather's like, that's me. Everything I'm doing in my life is lawless. And God is trying to stop me from speaking. So she like goes back to the church harder again. Billy still wants to get divorced. And she's like, then you handle the divorce. If you want a divorce, be proactive and divorce me. And he does. <laughs> the first time in his life, he does fucking anything. So now we're in the fifth section of the memoir. And if you guys have been listening at home over the last two years, you know that means only one thing. When you get to the last section of Reality TV Stars memoir, that means we are shifting into their business and how their whole life's journey has gotten them to the moral high ground of whatever they're hawking these days. And her business is the business of Botox. After he left, Billy kept me on a pretty tight budget. Sure, the mortgage checks never bounced, but there was no room for discretionary spending on things like Botox. I had to get creative. So she gets Botox at one place and then her friends at church are like, your Botox looks awful. You have to go to my guy. She ends up becoming friends with that guy and trading because she's been doing photography, trading social media skills for Botox. And then she just buys the business. Yeah, she's like, he wanted to move on to vaginal rejuvenation. So I just started paying all the bills for him and took over. And I'm like, what? What happened to that tight budget? You had room for a business that was floundering? I don't understand. So when she's doing his social media, she's not just like taking pictures for social media. She's hosting influencer events, doing all these business-related things for him. And then she just gets the business. And she has no idea what she's doing. So she brings in her friend, Dre. Their thing is that they wanted to make sure that their customers knew we valued their money, their time, and their experience, and their ability to determine their own outcomes. If an 18-year-old comes in and says, I want lips the size of two small pillows, who are we to say no? Okay. You are the adults. And she's like, you know, when you go to Target, nobody tells you what to buy. So we let people determine their own face. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I actually really want an expert opinion. Yeah, I trust expert opinions. Okay, maybe no one at Target is saying you have to buy some greens to balance those cocoa pebbles, which is her example. But when I go to Sweet Green, I order off the menu and I'm like, what do you think I should put in this salad? You guys have scientists back there in your Sweet Green lab. Our goal from the start has always been to put the power back in the hands of our customers. Beauty by the people for the people. And she talks about how your appearance is literally, quote, the most sacred part of your identity, which I feel is problematic. And she's like, <laughs> you came up with this brilliant thing called mini lip plumps, which is half the cost of a regular plump. And now anybody could try it. 
Yes, get everyone started on just a small amount of fillers and then get them addicted. And then she spends four pages talking about Meredith Marks in a way that made me put my book down and like breathe heavy and be worried that somebody was looking at me because it was so uncomfortable the way she was sucking Meredith Marks' dick. She's obsessed with Meredith Marks and I don't know who that is. She just like goes on and on about what a genius she is. This is the craziest line in the whole book. Let me see if you're thinking of the same one. When I heard that Meredith had fucked half of New York, I wasn't surprised. She doesn't do anything half-assed unless it's her pant size. There are still a few tricks I can learn from this garbage whore. What does that mean? <laughs> she is the human embodiment of Hobnob. But she says that as like a good thing. Meredith's parties always feature her real life friends and they are everything you'd want from the noshing and poshing Upper East Side. She says that a good sociologist would tell you it's important to study Meredith's migratory patterns in order to fully understand how she operates. She just talks about like what a genius she is and what a perfect mother she is and how she's like Eloise and she's so smart and so cool and so well dressed. And then she's like, she has the love story of a century. I'm like, does she? She fucked half in New York. Okay, and now here is the paragraph that I really think made me queasy. Brooks was barely 16 and already breaking boundaries back in the day by wearing baby pink before it was gender bending. Even as a teenager, he oozed star quality. The kind of kid who would be plucked from the audition to star in his own Disney series and then transition seamlessly to leading man before he was 27. He had the bone structure, the bankroll, and just the right amount of banal malaise that made both the girls and the boys swoon. If Meredith wasn't destined to be a real housewife, her youngest son was destined to be a real star. Ugh. Brooks, I cannot stand. I hate Brooks with like a passion. Anyway, so then she talks about her friend Whitney Rose. She does a boudoir shoot for Whitney. That's how they met. And then at the end, I guess Whitney took off her underwear at one point and was like, shoot me naked, bottom down, Pooh Bear style. (laughs) Shoot me like one of your Winnie the Pooh characters. (laughs) As I was leaving later that night, I spotted the tiny black panties on the patio. Once flung, now forgotten. I walked over, picked them up and slipped them into my pocket as smoothly as the sleeve of a French in Mauvain. You never know when an eye patch might come in handy. What? Is she wearing Whitney's underwear? I would never put your underwear in my pocket and take it home, Ashley. And that is a fucking promise. I fucking (laughs) thank you for that. How disgusting. I carry tongs in my purse for this exact reason. And then she talks about like Lisa Barlow and it's very passive aggressive. Not nice, not mean. I don't know. Essentially, all of this is to set up the fact that producers have come to Salt Lake City drumming up the idea of potentially some kind of reality show. So as she's made all these new friends and as she's watching her med spa business thrive, there is this opportunity on the horizon that maybe, maybe there's going to be a reality TV show. Okay, so I do want to say this for the SLC fans. I have not watched the most recent season. But what she says here is that actually Meredith Marks was the person who was initially in touch with the producers and she was like the mastermind behind all of it. She brought on her good friend Lisa, and then Lisa, being the boss bitch that she is, emphasis on bitch, wanted to take over and pretend it was her thing. And she's like, Meredith would never act like she was the puppeteer behind the scenes because that's just not her style. She doesn't give a shit. She doesn't care enough to be like, actually, this is my show. But it was Meredith's show. And then also, she's like, me and Meredith, we're just as good friends as Lisa and Meredith. But Lisa was clearly very territorial. So me and Meredith kind of pretended we weren't as close as we actually are in real life because we didn't want to threaten Lisa. And of course, Lisa ended up losing her friendship when she had one of the most famous hot mic moments in all of Real Housewives history. Have you ever heard that quote? Uh Uh-uh. I'm going to show it to you right after the show. I can't wait. And so that was interesting. And then this is all about how the show came together. Basically, it starts with Meredith being like, well, who do you think would be good for the show? And then we're asking those people who they think would be good for the show. And she's like, it starts off casual. Like, they call you for 45 minutes. And then they're like, okay, well, show me a picture of your house. Okay, show me a picture of every room. Okay, show me a picture of your bank account. And she was like... I was living it up and talking to them. And at this point, she's still technically Mormon. And they're like, do you drink? Does your family know you drink? Do you go out? Do you wear garments? 
she's a Mormon, but you know, she's having fun. She has a secret life still. And so she goes, every few weeks, Joey would interview me again. It was an awakening. I fell in love with myself as the girl I was introducing to him. I had been absent in my life for so long. I could hear my voice describing myself and I was reminded of Frederick warming the cave walls with just his words. I don't know what that's a reference to. So like Claire said at the beginning of this episode, she is seeing a life and a version of herself outside of Mormonism, but it is largely because of the promise of reality TV stardom. I felt warmer when I was living authentically, even if it was just during my conversations with Joey. I felt the ember flicker to life somewhere deep in my chest. And so she's almost creating this character on this phone calls where she's like testing new boundaries with him and being like, ooh, it kind of feels good to say I'm a girl who drinks. And so then I don't know how authentic it actually was because it wasn't how she was living yet. It was how she was idealizing herself. Yeah. And so these phone calls with this producer about the version of herself that she's promising for this show becomes kind of the driving force in the change in her life. And at this point, remember, she had just gotten this DUI, gone to the bishop and been like, I'm doubling back down in the Mormonism. But she's also a horny girl. I also want to point out we skipped it at the beginning, but she loved reality TV growing up. She was a huge reality TV fan and she was a huge Housewives fan. But at this point, the show was not Housewives. At this point, the show was just a show about businesswomen in Utah. And then they shoot a sizzle reel. And the sizzle reel is like a full production. It's a whole thing. And they go to LA and they shop it around. And Bravo ends up very interested. And then they find out that this show that has been picked up by Bravo is The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. So that's how that show comes to be. And then the book kind of ends right as it starts. The epilogue references the finale, but it really ends with the Real Housewives picking them up. She does not say a word about Jen Shaw. Well, she does talk about Jen Shaw. She talks about Jen Shaw as her friend. She doesn't talk about Jen Shaw as a criminal. So here's what she says about Jen Shaw. Jen was a beauty labber and she was fabulous. First of all, I would never claim that face. I <laughs> don't think Jen Shaw's work looks good. I think it looks scary. And I guess that's their whole thing. They're like, hey, if you want to look like a freak, we'll do it. Yeah. We won't stop you from looking insane. There's like a shockingly different beauty standard in Utah. And I don't think Jen Shaw looks beautiful. I think her face looks quite scary. I think they all look scary, but they all look like a very similar amount of horrifying to I me. I don't think it's just Utah. I think it's the Upper East Side. I think it's yeah. Beverly Hills. I think when you forget that you're getting plastic surgery to look like naturally more beautiful, you want to look like you've had work done. And yeah. I've heard people say that. They're like, I want to leave and look like I got shit done because that in itself is the status symbol. But it is funny that their whole marketing scheme is they're like, we're not like other filler labs. They want you to look good. We want you to look crazy. <laughs> Listen, your skin is quite elastic and we're going to see how elastic Unlike other doctors, we like your bad ideas. <laughs> so here's how she describes Jen. When she walks into a room, she leads with her charisma. She has street smarts and survival instincts, but the magical part about Jen Shaw was also the part that made her a fallible and human. She was messy and she owned it. She did not really own it. So one weekend she spends in New York City with Jen Shaw and Jen's like, come with me. I'm taking my company out to their business dinner at Tao. The dinner is at 9 p.m. She's like, just come. The glam team doesn't even get to Jen's hotel till 9 p.m. So they show up to her own company dinner like two hours late. She's brought the glam squad. She's brought whoever wants to come. Like the Uber driver is sitting at Tao. She keeps ordering and ordering. They party at One Oak. She's like, we got the owner's table. It was crazy. If you're ever going to go out, go out with Jen Shaw. And then Jen Shaw's like, who do you want to fuck here? I'll go get him. And so she points to the 6'6 guy and Jen Shaw brings him back. Heather goes to Harlem with him that night, fucks him, comes home at 6 a.m. and is like, Jen Shaw's the greatest wing woman of all time. It was so fun. Hot girl summer forever. And I'm like, why are you still so proud of this night? It's weird because she is weirdly loyal to Jen Shaw. I'm like, because she got you laid once? Yeah. That's all it took? So she talks about the airing of the show and how she essentially came out as not a Mormon with this TV show. She ordered a drink on television. She wore an outfit on an episode of the show where you could clearly see that she wasn't wearing her garments. I hadn't been wearing my garments for years, but I still felt exposed. She never really talks about when she decided to stop wearing them. 
on the show, she sits her daughters down and tells them that she wants to leave the church and they're allowed to do whatever they want, but here's why. And she's like, I couldn't be a part of a church that's homophobic and racist. And you guys do what you want, though. But then she's talking about how she's so happy. And she's like, you know, I traded in this idea of being a perfect housewife for being a real housewife. And she says, because my fame seemed to come at the sake of my salvation, it held no value for my friends or family. Instead of being my trumpet of success, it became the elephant in the room. So her family has kind of disowned her. I do think it's fucked up to raise your children in a church and tell them you're leaving on camera. I think from this and from Julia Hart's book, I think there needs to be a real program for walking your children through a religion that you're leaving that you've raised them to believe is the only thing that's right because they're still kids with mushy idiot brains and you've told them that like if you don't follow these rules you'll go to hell and burn forever and now you're saying oh I don't believe that anymore by the way ha, you do whatever you want to do and it's like there needs to be a handholding like a deprogramming and she goes the real housewives of Salt Lake City changed everything I didn't need a figurehead to lead me I didn't need a figurehead to raise a family to be a mom to be an example for my daughters for so long, I had been committed to becoming a housewife, to hiding the most important parts of myself in order to be as appealing as possible. In pursuit of that title, I had lost myself, resigned to the fact that it would never be. So much had been lost, but so much has been gained. And then she talks about how much she has gained by being on TV because of all the DMs and the fans she has. Oh, God. I do not like when people feel seen because people on the internet are saying, no, I like you right now. I mean, you're right. She is just trying to win the game of reality TV. And right now she feels like she has a pretty good score. But one hot mic and you're out. Or one bad edit. As soon as the show began airing, I suddenly had new friends, a new family. Housewives from every franchise, Bravo celebrities, reality TV fans, devout and former adherents from all major and minor religions. Families in every form, folks from every faith, background and culture, all of them seeking me out, celebrating my story, replacing my exile with their empathy. In the name of the Father, Son, and Andy Cohen, amen. She goes, I belong to a greater community. The people who will always tell you the truth. Real housewives. So final thoughts, Ash? Yeesh. Yeah, I don't normally say this explicitly, but I do feel this podcast episode is all you need to know about this book. I think there's separate things to be interested in. If you're actually interested in Mormonism or like in religion, I think there's probably better ways to learn about it. I don't feel that this scratched the itch that hard if that was what you were looking for. I also think overall it wasn't an incredibly read book. I feel really bad for anyone who grows up in a very extreme religion in this way. It is difficult and I feel for you. I do think there's like more unpacking to be done before the book gets written. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem is I think she could have done a great story, but right now she's like capitalizing on a moment and you have to breathe a little bit. You have to know how it works. I mean, the things that would have been interesting, like what actually went wrong in your marriage? Like, why are you sticking by Jen Shaw? I mean, there's different things I would love to see you unpack. I don't feel that she unpacked a lot. It wasn't written particularly well, but she seems great. She seems so nice. I mean, and I mean yeah. that sincerely. No, I think she seems really fun. I would love to go to Tao until 4 a.m. with her. We love you guys so much. We are on the Patreon this week. Follow our Instagram for all updates about shows. That's the easiest place to see where we're going next. And also for like what we're doing on the Patreon in case you're interested and want to poke about. We love you so much. And thank you so much to our five-star reviewers. Thank you, Smiling Goat, the greatest smiler of all time. Thank you, NYC Sarah. You are the apple of my eye. Thank you, JDog0217, my second favorite dog in town. Thank you, Mad64. I am absolutely mad for this review. Thank you, KCL1994. I don't know what you're talking about because this review is a W. Thank you, SIWB Phi Down. This review has me up. Thank you, J Lynn V. Pass me that, Jay. I am having a great time chilling here. Thank you, Kate D. Boo. You're my boo. 
Thank you for being here. Thank you, Casey Sizzle. This review absolutely sizzles. Thank you, CRM0134. I think that this is a fancy tech thing, and I'm proud of you for being the smartest wormy in town. And that is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I love you.